Please be seated. Okay. If you read history, if you read historical addresses, if you read people who write for a specific time in history, you're always going to say people, have people who say, it is getting darker and darker, we're sliding into the abyss. And you're going to have other people say, no, it's getting a little better. We're, we're doing okay. Uh, for example, in 1829, there was a man named John Wilson who wrote an article in a British journal of cultural thought, and he said this. He said, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Never sets. The next year, there's a member of parliament named Thomas Macaulay who rose and he said, spoke and he said, I have this to say. He said, it is dark and getting darker. Our best years are behind us. We have nothing to look forward to except degradation and sorrow. Seven years later, a five-foot young woman, five feet tall in big hills, became the Queen of England. Her name was Victoria. She was queen for 63 years. And in retrospect, her reign was the golden era of the British Empire. So Wilson was right, Macaulay was wrong. Fast forward to our day. If you read and listen and think, you'll have people who say the same thing. And when, when we turned the calendar, it became the year 2000. You know, remember right before that Y2K meltdown where planes would crash and trains would go off the rail and we would all be freeze, whatever, uh, which didn't happen. Uh, I read two books. One was by a guy named uh, Os Guinness, who's a British evangelical, entitled The American Hour. And what he said was that this is the American Hour. The communism has died and America is at its greatest strength. It's the only superpower in the world. Therefore, there's nothing but promise that lays ahead of America, to a degree. Another guy named Thomas Friedman wrote a book called The American Century. And he said that this is going to be the century of incredible economic growth, global expansion of democracy. This is the American century. Well, nobody foresaw 9-11. Nobody foresaw that people were talking about how the former Soviet Union blocks, Russia, and all the other countries would go hopefully into a democratic form of government. Now we know that Russia has gone exactly the opposite way. They're under totalitarianism with a guy named Putin. In 2000, there was a great openness in China. It was the Deng Xiaoping era where there was openness and really religious freedom to a degree. But now China has gone back into the personality cult of Mao Zedong with a guy named Chairman Xi. People say, what do you think about the coronavirus? We have no idea about the coronavirus because we only know what they're telling us. And what they're telling us is under state control. So, 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 I, so I think that if you were to ask me, I would say we're at a crossroads in our culture. That we're at a place where we need to be people of, of prayer people of the word, people who are intentional. Two years ago, a book was released by a guy named Rod Dreer. It's a good book. It's called The Benedict Option, named after Benedict from the 6th century who started the Benedictine order and how they had regimented times of prayer and they had intentional community that they built. And, and the thesis of his book is that because of the fact that he quotes Pope Benedict XVI, who says that the Western world is nothing more than a boatload of relativism, a boatload of no truth. Nobody believes in truth. 
And so, so, the, 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 so the, he says that in order for us to really survive, we have to have intentional communities of prayer and the Word where people are taught to think, where children are instructed and built up. He uses the words like intentional. We must be vigilant. And he says if we have a just-go-along-to-get-along attitude towards our culture and towards the faith, we will crash and burn. And I think he's right. So I look at these people. I am always somewhat optimistic because as I study church history, this is the way it goes. The church goes into decline. People question the truth, and then God, by the Spirit, comes in in power, and we're revitalized. This happened time after time after time. In fact, there's a quote I want to give you by a guy named Tim Keller, who's a pastor from New York, a wonderful man. He says, throughout the Old and New Testaments in church history, every spiritual awakening was founded upon corporate prevailing, intensive, kingdom-centered prayer. We cannot create spiritual renewal by ourselves, but we can prepare the altar and ask God to send the Holy Spirit to change our hearts and our churches and our communities. And he says every, I'm not sure it's every spiritual awakening, but I think the vast majority of spiritual awakenings have been preceded by the people of God who felt desperate enough to really go to God in prayer and to be prayers. I want us to be a church of prayer. I want to be a man of prayer. So the next few weeks, next week's missions conference, but the next few weeks I'm going to go through the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 and just talk about it. Today's going to be an overview of, on prayer and, and how important it is. So, so um, I believe prayer is important because it focuses our energy, it gives us fresh energy, it compels us, and it calls forth the power of the Holy Spirit. I think prayer is very important, and yet prayer is very hard. Let's be honest. Prayer is difficult, and it is hard. But God calls us to it. You, you read throughout the Bible the promise after promise after promise regarding prayer. And it makes me call out, I want to be a person of prayer. And yet, this is a quote, I, I, I give this quote a lot. A guy named Francis Schaeffer from my background, very dear to me. He died in 1984. A great, great, wonderful man, good thinker. He said this, if we woke up tomorrow morning and every reference to prayer and the Holy Spirit had been taken out of the Bible... Would it make any difference in the way we live? And sometimes, to my shame, I would say, not that much. Not that much. But you look at the Bible, promise after promise after promise about God blessing his people, God energizing his people, God compelling his people as we are people of prayer. So I'm going to give you my thesis and then four points. My thesis is this. You're going to hear this several times. The Father delights in the prayers of his broken, needy, dearly loved children who come to him in the name of Jesus. The Father delights in our prayers. The, the prayers of broken, needy, dearly loved, adopted children who come to him in the name of Jesus. The, the, the Father delights to be asked. He delights to be sought. And that's, that's what we're called to do. So four statements. The first is this. One reason we do not pray is because we don't see the importance of prayer from Scripture and or we are not desperate. I believe that only people who see their true desperation really go hard for Christ. We don't see the importance or the desperation. So 
people will come to me as a pastor occasionally, and they'll say, we're, we're dealing with this uh, in our marriage, um, and, uh, or we're dealing with this with our parenting, or some might come this in relationships, and, or this about moving to a new job, or the career choice about graduate school, so forth and so on. And sometimes they come to marriage, I'll say, well, here, here are five, my five favorite books on marriage. Read this book, and we'll talk about it in two weeks. Or you're dealing with some issue maybe in sexuality. Here's a great book on the a biblical view of sexuality. Let's read this and talk about it. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But I, I would say this, that the first thing we do, we should do, the first thing we should do, parents, grandparents, community group leaders, Bible study leaders, elders, the first thing we should do is go to James 1 that says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given him. The first thing we should do is, is say, well, but before we even begin to talk about the subject, let's beseech the throne of the Father through the name of Jesus. Say, God, give us wisdom in how to do this. God, give us wisdom in approaching this subject. God, give us wisdom by the power of the Spirit. Because, because that's where, I, I believe, change happens. That's, that's where it really gets down the reality. This may not work with you. This is my illustration. I believe growing older is like raising a child. Okay? When you have a baby, you don't sleep much, but you, you feed the baby, you change the baby, you hold the baby, the baby's there. You, 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 you know where the baby is. You swaddle the baby. You, you have monitors in, in the baby's room. You have cameras. You have light detection sensors, whatever you have with babies today. And the, the baby grows up, and the baby, you put the little, the little toddler now in the car seat, and you buckle them in, and you harness them in, and they're there. And, and then they, they grow up, and, and you watch them as they play, and you do this, and you you're careful about who their playmates are, and, and then they go to school, but you know the teachers, and you know the school, and you're very careful. And, but somewhere, as a parent, somewhere along the line, maybe age 10 or 11, it hits you, I am no longer in control the way I used to be. I, I, can't, I, I can't be in control the way I used to be. And then about the age of 14 or 15, you go, I am really not in control. And then when they get in the car on that fateful day and they go to work in another city or they go to college or they join the services or whatever they do, you realize I am really, 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 really not in control. To me, that's life. You know, you're young, you go, you do this, and you do this in the SAT, you go to this school, you do this GPA, this school, you get in this graduate school, you get in this postgraduate program, you get married, you marry the person of your dreams, they're perfect, and you're perfect, and you're going to have the perfect marriage. And then you get in the job, and the job is not that much fun, and then you hit some walls in your marriage, and you have this. The older I get, the more I realize I am not in control. I'm not. Thinking your control is really a facade. You, you aren't in control. The older I get, the more I realize I, I need desperately for the intervention and the mercy of the living God in my life. Listen, if you're not desperate, let me tell you this, you should be. You should be. I say this frequently, but you're one dumb decision away from blowing it. In John 15, Jesus is saying, be desperate. He talks about this well-known passage that 
You've read many times, you've been a believer for three or four years. John 15, Jesus says in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. God builds us. And then he talks about abiding. And you, you can read these verses, not get the full impact. Abiding means to tenaciously cling to and hold to. It means to just hang on. Just be there. Verse 4. He says, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Pretty clear. I am the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing of spiritually lasting good. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it shall be done to you. Abide, 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 abide. What Christ is saying is we must be people who are, are dead desperate. Number two, we don't pray times because, quite frankly, we make prayer way too difficult. Prayer's hard. And it's easy to start praying and just really kind of give up instead of hanging in there. Let me read this. This is Mark, excuse me, Matthew 18, verse 2 through 4. And Jesus called to him a child, and he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And I read that and I go, I need to be like a child. When I, a child is filled with wonder and spontaneity and joy and simplicity. So I come to the living God in wonder and joy and simplicity, just thanking the Father that he loves me in the name of Jesus. I may prayer too difficult. The New City Catechism says this, question 38, what is prayer? Prayer is a pouring out, I like that, pouring out of our, of our hearts to God in praise, petition, confession, and thanksgiving. Simple. Praise that leads to praying for other people. I think confession of our sin that keeps the roadblock cleared to the Father. And thanksgiving that gives us a mind that is filled with joy and hope talking to someone the other day, did kind of a brief survey, and I said, what do you think, what are your questions about prayer? And they said several things, a wonderful group of young people, young singles. And one person said, you know, I, I sometimes my prayers are just not as, um, well, as pastoral as the prayers that I hear prayed in Sunday Bible study and in church. My prayers are kind of halting and wondering, and I said, the Father loves that. I said, don't, don't be hung up on, 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 on superfluidity of language. We are not heard. Jesus says, quite frankly, quite honestly, he says, you are not heard because of the amount of verbiage that spills from your mouth. You're not. In fact, I said, some of the most God-honoring prayers are just groans. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, the most spiritual prayers are, God, in the name of Jesus, have mercy. Groans. This past week, on Friday, I've been burdened with a family in our church that's facing a very difficult time in their, in their life. I've been praying daily for some people that are trapped in a sin that they just can't get out of. I'm praying daily for three different people who have been told you have terminal cancer. I'm praying for these marriages to be restored. And you know, you, I, I keep a list in my wallet, just on, on a little index card. And this week I was talking to somebody, and they mentioned somebody that I knew years ago who was like a daughter to me who, who was going strong, and fit, beautiful, talented, 4 student, gifted. And, and all, of a sudden, all of a sudden, she just did a U-turn and left the faith. And her whole life has been a train wreck since then. And so I went back to my study. I just sat there and I couldn't concentrate. I just groaned over this list. I said, God, have mercy upon these dear people. And I would tell you, I do not groan enough. One of our prayers should be, Lord, may the things that break your heart break my heart. May the things that break your heart break my heart. Let me give you an example. I pray for our country. There is a bill that's been sponsored by Ben Sass, who's a senator from Nebraska, a godly man, by the way. It's called the Born, Born Alive Bill. That's what's the nickname. What the bill says is that occasionally in abortion clinics, when late-term abortions are done, the child is born alive. And all this bill says is that it will be required of health givers to give the full weight of attention to making that child viable and healthy and let it, let it live. I mean, it's, and he's, he has said, this is not to limit abortion. I said, I'm not going to address that right now. This is not to go against anything that, in the Roe v. Wade. This is, this is simply saying, if a child is born alive, then medical attention must be given to him or her. And I read, I've read the bill, I've read the arguments, and I thought, really, this is about as simple as the decision as you could ever be asked to make as a senator, and yet they voted it down last year. It's going to be brought up again. The two-thirds that's required did not pass it. And I thought, have we come to a place in our culture where senators who we respect and admire, who are educated and, and, and really thoughtful, cannot see that this type of situation must be applied. I mean, I, a first grader can see that, yeah, that, that, that life, yeah, you, sure you do. And I, I thought, God have mercy upon our country. So, so the things that break the heart of God should break my heart. So let me give you a couple of things here about not making prayer difficult. There's a statement here from a wonderful book by Paul Miller about sleeping into prayers in the worship guide. And this is what Miller says. He says, a praying life isn't simply a morning time. It is also sleeping into prayer in odd hours, I'd say for two or three minutes. Unless you... Uh, 
not because we are disciplined, but because we're in touch with our own poverty of spirit. So, so there's a hymn that's called What a Friend We Have in Jesus. All our pain and grief to bear, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. But the stanza that I really like in that hymn is this. Um, are, are you weak and heavy laden? The question. Answer. My answer. Absolutely. We can heavy laden because of my sin, because of the brokenness around me, because of this and that. Yeah, that, I am often weak and heavy laden. Sure. Next line. Cumbered with a load of care? Question mark. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I am often weighed down with cares about people and situations. Precious Savior, still our refuge, take it to thy, the Lord in prayer. Then the next question, do your friends despise and forsake you? Well, thankfully, no, but yes, sometimes you feel forsaken, misunderstood. It says, take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield thee. You will find a solace there. I believe that. I believe that prayer energizes, brings comfort as, as I pray God's prayers and think them after him. So let me give you a couple of things. Very practical. The Psalms is, are God's prayer book. So on, on the day of the month, I pray that Psalm or one of the Psalms plus 30. For example, today's the 23rd of February. So I pray Psalm 23 or 53 or 83. So you get it as you go up. There's 150 Psalms. So I, you just do it by 30s. And then really, it's the 23rd. I'm sorry, but it's, I'm kind of cheating on you guys. Sometimes you hit a Psalm and you go, man, this doesn't work. Just go to the next 30 Psalm. Okay? So it's, it's okay. So, but Psalm 23, I'm cheating. I know it is. The, the, the Lord is my shepherd. So here's what you do. So you want to praise the Lord. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And you say, Lord, I thank you that you're the good shepherd and you go before your sheep and you love them. I thank you, shepherd Jesus, that you care for your own. I thank you. And as you praise God for that, you, you think of a family that needs shepherding. They're going through a hard time. Say, Lord, please shepherd this dear family as they walk down this path. He leads us beside still waters and green pastures. Lord, thank you that you are a God who refreshes and restores and renews. And then the Lord brings to mind somebody that needs some green pastures. They're just been pushed hard. They're, 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 they're barely hanging in there. I mean, they're in the 15th round of a heavyweight bout, and they're not doing well. And say, Lord, lead them to green pastures. Give them green pastures. Lord, do that. Again, I walk through the valley of shadow of death, and there are two families I've been praying for Funerals were yesterday, dear families. And Lord, as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, just be their guide and strength. Be their guide and strength. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, which is fresh nourishment. Lord, bring fresh anointings and power to these people. And even as they walk in the, through the valley of the shadow of death. And the, I mean, so I pray for the church in North Africa and these dear men and women that I see every year who really are under the sentence of, of death in some cases. But see, that way you don't run out of things to pray. <laughs> and, and you learn, you, this is God's prayer book. Two other things. I use my hand. I go from stoplight to stoplight sometimes. It's pretty simple. The thumb. I pray for my immediate family every day. For my grandkids. 
my children, their spouses, my, my wife, I, every day. Index finger. Those need to be pointed to Jesus. I pray for people I know who, maybe my three, that we're pray for, praying for as Easter approaches, that, that need to be pointed to Jesus. Middle finger, tallest finger, those who are in authority. Pray for those in authority on a state and national level, local level, or those who are leading out in the church, some of our elders, or some of our staff, some of the leaders in the church of Christ nationwide and worldwide. The weak finger, those who are just hurting, going through grief or who are sick. And the little finger, the next generation. It's just simple. Pray for a gracious outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these kids that they would stand strong in, in, a, in a world that's tough. That's what I do. And now, hear me. Also, I would ask you as families, pray together. Um, one reason we don't have more prayer as families is because we think we've got to do something like we've got to read through the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin and then talk about it. And I don't, or we've got, to, we've got to study the book of Romans in, in Greek or whatever. I don't know. Just keep it simple. Read, read, read a, a psalm or the Proverbs of the day or read a portion of the gospel. Just three or four verses and, and just talk and just pray together. Have a couple people pray. Don't, don't make it this, but just make it simple. Because you invite the power of the Holy Spirit into your marriage and into your family. That we, you can ask your kids, you know, just, just name one thing that happened to you today. And they said, well, okay, the lunch you guys made was not very good. No, no, let me rephrase that. One good thing that happened to you today. And there's a guy that is uh, on my man-to-man table, and he has three small girls. And he says, he, they ask this occasionally. What one thing comes to mind that you would redo today if you had the chance to do it again? That's a great question. I've never thought of that. I've, bar I've barred that now. But you open the Bible, you read, and a couple people pray, and that's it. You know, it's just, it's just it. Husbands and wives, just pray together. Just say, let's pray. It's nothing, nothing fancy. So, so, so I, I think that's just incredibly important. I want us to be a church of prayer, families of prayer, because prayer focuses, compels, energizes, and calls forth the Holy Spirit. The fourth reason, or third reason we don't pray as we should is that we, 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 we get caught up in, in not surrendering to the mystery of prayer. This is a book, I brought it in, this, I got this book a couple years ago, it was called Prayer and Providence by a professor of theology at a seminary in Manitoba, Canada. And it's, uh, it's really a scholarly book. It's not an easy read. And, but he has 10 models for prayer in here. And the first three, he says, really are horrible. And they are. And the last one is horrible. But there's some in the middle that it says, oh, okay, okay, okay. And he, he talks about one is the Barton view of prayer. He says, it's pretty good. And he says, then there's the, the Calvinistic view of prayer, which he says, where he's, he's come to in his own study of the Bible, which is where I stand, so I kind of like the book. But, 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 but time after time, he, he asked this question, how do you explain God's kingly rule and sovereignty with the fact that prayer changes people, prayer changes me, prayer changes 
things around us? How do you square, how do you, how do you put those together? And his answer is, and really this, this book is 500 pages, well, 420 pages. His answer is, I don't know. It could be a two-page book, really, to a degree. And so, so when you come to prayer, do you say, is God absolutely the king who rules? Yes. Are you telling me that nothing happens in my life that doesn't go through the hands of my heavenly father and the nail-scarred hands of my Savior? You're right. Are you telling me that not a sparrow or a bird falls from the ground without my father's knowledge? You're right. Are you telling me God has numbered the hair upon my head? Absolutely, positively, yes. So those are all biblical statements. Are you telling me that 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 Prayer changes me and changes things and changes perspectives. Yes, you have not because you ask not. I mean, you, you don't reconcile. Some things in the Scripture are beyond my understanding. And I realize I'm not that smart, but even some of you, I would say, they're beyond your understanding. And that's okay. What I'm saying is that God enormously works in the hearts of people who go hard for Him in the name of Jesus. The Father delights in our prayers, and it calls forth the power of the Spirit in our lives. So, and the last reason I want to mention today, the last reason that we struggle with prayer, is that we assume the gospel, and we build our lives on our performance. And so we pull back from prayer because we are unworthy. Now, let me explain. If we are to go strong in the faith... We've got to love the gospel of grace every day. We've got to sing it. We've got to memorize it. We've got to think it. We've got to meditate on it. Jesus died on the cross for my sin. All my guilt and crud and junk have been dealt with because Jesus shed his blood. My sins are forgiven past, present, and future. Yes, I confess my sins to get rid of the roadblocks, but he loves me. He, so so I, I build my life on the reality of the gospel of grace and what Jesus has done for me. When you, when you start assuming the gospel, yeah, I believe the gospel, I've got to do, 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 do. When you do that, you, you fall into, I think, a lack of joy and performance. And there's, you, 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 can't get, you can't live there. In Galatians, Paul is talking to the church, and they said, yeah, we believe in the gospel, but we've got to do, do, do. And Paul thunders forth in chapter 4, verse 15. What has happened to your joy? See, when we forget the gospel, we assume the gospel, and the gospel isn't central, we lose our joy. So I would say to you, if you're going to be a person who says, I want to be mighty in prayer, you run to the cross and say, I come to you, almighty God, in your triune glory, only in the name of Jesus. Christian praying always says, I come to the name of Jesus or I pray in the name of Jesus. If you come to the Lord in your own official capacities or your own work, you're doomed. The book of Hebrews, this is a great statement. Just Hebrews 4 is dealing with the rest God wants to give us. And he says, enter that rest. They come to verse 11. And he says, therefore, let us strive, strong word, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience as we've seen in the previous chapters. So you strive. And then verse 12 says, the word of God is living and active and sharpened the double-edged sword and it pierces to the division of the soul and spirit of, of the joints of the marrow and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And you go, oh no. So the, the word of God 
First of all, I've got to work hard and strive. And then the Word of God judges the thoughts and the intentions of my heart. I'm sunk because my thoughts and my intentions stink often. Oh, no. And then the writer pours gas on the fire. He says, verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before his holy eyes. And I go, no. So strive, work hard, okay. Judges the thoughts and intentions of your heart. I'm sunk. And then on top of that, don't ever be, com- be confused. God sees and knows everything. And you go, I'm toast. But then the trumpet sound. Verse 14. The gospel. Listen. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. There's one high priest. There's one priesthood. The high priest's name is Jesus. Let us hold fast to our confession of faith. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Anything about that. Jesus, the eternal God, became a man and experienced life in its fullness and never sinned. But he knows your heartache. He knows rejection. He knows trials. He knows being misunderstood. He knows being subjugated to all kinds of things. Then verse 16. <laughs> says this. Let us, therefore, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Wow. That's the gospel. So why do we draw near to the throne of grace? Because Jesus is the one high priest who died on the cross for my sins and covered all of my sin. So, so yes, my, my thoughts, my intentions can often stink and I run to the cross and confess them. But Jesus loves me still. And so, so when, I, when, I, when I forget that, when I start assuming the gospel instead of living in the gospel and breathing the gospel and glorying in the fancy word, the imputation of all Jesus is for me to my account, joy goes. Prayer goes. So, brothers and sisters, let us pray and seek God and be joyful children and glory in the gospel of grace. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, forgive us uh, often for, uh, well, just having prayers that meander and forgive us for giving up too quickly. I, I pray we would persevere in going hard for you. I, I, I pray, Lord, you'd awaken in our hearts our desire to pray and, to, and, and knowing that prayer energizes, focuses, compels, calls forth the power of the Holy Spirit. So, God, have mercy upon us. Show us, show us um, that, that you're a, a wonderful Father and you delight in our meandering prayers and you love us and we can come to you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we plead for fresh energy and passion. We, we plead to have homes 
that are filled with the laughter of heaven and the gladness of heaven. Uh, Lord, for, forgive us for just neglecting to stretch ourselves out before you. So, so we, we do that now. We, Lord, you've been so good to us. I, I just, I can't get over how glorious you have been in forgiving sin and supporting and encouraging. I see so many people who just have been faithful. And yet, Lord, we will walk in the valley of shadow of death. We will walk in dark places. We will have doubts and frustrations. And please, Holy Spirit, let us call out in the name of Jesus for your intervention, for your empowering. Lord, we want that. I pray we would not just have maintenance prayers, but frontline, wartime, cutting-edge prayers that say, God, advance the kingdom and show your power, show your might, bring your healing, bring your power, bring your conviction, and do it in me. Do it in me. Um, have mercy, Lord. We thank you for the good things you're doing, and we pray that this next week and this next weekend, as we think about the cause of the gospel in the nations and in the neighborhoods, that our hearts will be aflame to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So honor your name among us. Come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.